Uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus' famous words in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. But before we read them, uh, I want to spend uh, a little while really critiquing the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now so that you're then set up to receive the words of Jesus as the stunning, stunning good news that they really are. But before any of that, I want you to very quickly turn to the person next to you and ask them the simple question, what got you out of bed this morning? Okay, so that's the question. Just ask the person next to you, what got you out of bed this morning? Okay, that's enough of that. Uh, maybe there are a few kind of bold people on a shout out. What, what got you out of bed this morning? Hunger, <laughs> kind of desperate for breakfast. Uh, so, so what did you have for breakfast? I think I'll still be hungry after that. <laughs> no wonder you're hungry. Uh, I heard kids from over here. Uh, anything, anything else got you out of bed this morning? Your desire to worship. Uh, your, <laughs> your desire to worship what? <laughs> uh, a bigger breakfast, sir. Uh, anything else? My wife. I saw a bit of prodding going on there, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, don't know if you're interested, uh, this is what got me out of bed this morning. Not, not hunger, but the smell of coffee. Um, uh, and also the prospect of being with you uh, and uh, following uh, Nate's lead over there, the, the opportunity to meet with God uh, this morning. Uh, and as weird as this may sound, this is actually my job. And so I wanted to come here and work. I wanted in my own small way to contribute, hopefully, to human flourishing. And if truth be told, I also wanted to make a little bit of money uh, so that Helen and I could afford to eat uh, this next week, something a little more ambitious than yogurt and kiwi fruit. Uh, so that's why I'm here. My point is, I woke up with a whole range of different desires, and those desires uh, what got me out of bed. And so desire can be this great motivator. It's essentially the engine room of our life. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning and propels us out into the world. But that being said, if at any point desire ceases to be under our control, if we're not at the steering wheel anymore and instead it is driving our life, then I'd suggest at that point we are in serious trouble. Because when you zoom in and take a closer look at some of the dynamics of desire, you begin to realize really fast that it's one of those things that is never, ever, ever truly satisfied. As far back as 1000 BC, the author of Ecclesiastes concluded that the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Uh, and uh, a more recent poet simply said, I can't get no satisfaction, which is perhaps highbrow here, I tell you, uh, which is perhaps why back in the 13th century, the Italian philosopher Thomas Aquinas, when he set out to really answer the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? The answer he came up with was, ready for it? Everything. 
We would have to experience everything and everybody in order to ever feel truly, deeply satisfied. We'd have to eat at every single restaurant in the world, travel to every country, visit every city, town, and village, have every sexual partner, every accomplishment. We'd have to experience everything in the universe to ever feel fully satisfied. Now, what all of those bright minds are tapping into is kind of the reality that desire is infinite and without limit, whereas we are finite. We inhabit time and space. We have just one body, one gender, one city, one job, one story. And the end result is restlessness. It's like many of us live with this chronic state of unsatisfied desire, like this itch that no matter how long we scratch it, it refuses to fully go away. And so the question then becomes, well, how then do we live with this restlessness? How do we live with all this pent-up unsatisfied desire. If satisfying those desires is not an option for us, what do we do with them then? Well, there are any number of different philosophies and religions out there that really set out to answer that question. But as we're going to see this morning, human desire is infinite because ultimately we were made to live with God forever in his world, and nothing less than that will ever truly satisfy us. And so, where a religion like Buddhism, for example, would say you need to detach from your desire, and where our society would go the other way and say you need to do everything in your power to chase after your desire, what Jesus comes to us and says is, no, you need to put your desire in its proper place on God and put all your other desires in their proper place below God. Which doesn't mean you don't still want them, but you no longer need whatever that thing is. Marriage, children, the new job, the holiday, the new pair of shoes. You want that stuff, but you don't need it in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. As the 4th century African bishop Augustine put it, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. More recently, Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to 
destruction. And so, without God, we end up in this chronic state of restlessness at best, or worse, frustration, anger, disappointment, disillusionment, just railing against our life, which ironically often leads to a life of more hurry and busyness and overload and shopping and materialism and careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless and exhausted. And then to make a bad problem worse, Social media takes this to a whole new level as we live under this constant barrage of images from well-meaning family and friends who curate the best moments of their life or exaggerated unreal moments from their life and unintentionally play to one of the core sins of the human condition, namely envy. And the advertising industry no offense to those who work in the advertising industry, it's a valid job and we applaud those who work in that industry. But the advertising industry kind of pours petrol on the flames of this as it seeks to monetize our restlessness. They say, uh, I don't know whether uh, this is true, but they say we see upwards of 4,000 advertisements a day, all of them designed to stoke the fire of desire in our belly. Buy this, eat this, drink this, do this, have this, own this, be this, go here, go there. Our entire economy is built on people spending money they don't have on things they don't need in a futile attempt to quench our desire for something more. And tragically, when this innate human restlessness collides with the whole digital age and this whole culture of accumulation, more, 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 the end result, and have a look in our society right now, the end result is an epidemic of emotional ill health and spiritual death, where people are continually rushing and increasingly anxious. How are you doing? Glad you came this morning. Glad whatever it was got you out of bed, got you out of bed and got you here. Uh, I promise uh, we're not going to remain here for too much longer. A little bit longer, but not too much longer. Uh, I'm just setting you up to hear some good news. But all I want you to see is our culture is forming us into a condition of hurry and overload and busyness and chronic stress and restlessness and exhaustion. A.J. Swoboda writes this, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture 
that in Paul's words is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We've become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Now, here's where I'm going with all of this. If you remember, what we're doing over the summer is looking a little deeper at how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms us. The premise is really pretty simple. If we actually lived in the good of what we believe, then our lives for sure would certainly be the richer for it. And also the the spin-off would be the people around us, they would be way more interested in our message. And really, against the backdrop of all the restlessness and the exhaustion in our society right now, the passage we're going to be looking at today is incredible incredibly, incredibly relevant. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll make you successful, or come to me and I'll make you wealthy, or come to me and I will just heap religious commandments on you. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest. To this human condition of restlessness, Jesus comes to offer you rest. Not just rest for your body, rest for your soul. Matthew 11, I'm going to pick it up in verse 25. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My my Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound appealing to anyone here? Absolutely it does. So let's delve in and look a little closer at what Jesus is actually saying here. Jesus in this passage, I don't know if you noticed it, essentially he's giving us a contrast. There are two key ideas here. Firstly, the culture, by default, Jesus would say, has a blindness to the wisdom of God. That's why he says, Father, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. So, according to Jesus, we're not going to gain this wisdom by primarily listening to our culture. If all we do is listen to secular wisdom, as I've tried to paint the picture already, it will just burn us out. It will leave us restless and exhausted. Which kind of sets us up for the second key idea here, namely that the secret wisdom of God is learning to rest in Jesus, which in turn will lead to a way more fruitful life. However, if we ignore this teaching and instead choose to go the way of the world, the church will be characterized by burden, by burnout, by compromise. And I want to say this as gently, but as clearly as I can, Jesus isn't glorified or seen as beautiful or desirable if all of his followers all of the time are exhausted and stressed and worn out in the exact same way as the world. I mean, have you ever spoken to someone who's hyper-stressed out and busy and not sleeping, and you go away from that conversation and you think to yourself, you know what, I really want what they've got. We don't think that, do we? Now, I don't say that to condemn anyone who is in that situation right now. Uh, Again, I, I want you to hear these words, not as condemnation, but as a gracious invitation from your heavenly Father to walk into true, lasting, deep rest today. I think one of the most important aspects of spiritual warfare for us as followers of Jesus is simply learning to live in the rhythm of rest in a culture that refuses to allow us to rest. That's real spiritual warfare. It's a battle that we all face. And I think one of the ways we do this, according to Jesus in this passage, is by examining the yoke on our life. Uh, Just to say, I'm not talking about eggs here. It's not that kind of a yoke. Uh, A yoke back then was this wooden cross piece that fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or cart that they pulled. So this is a picture or a metaphor for the weight or the load that you're carrying in life. So let me ask you to be honest. How are you today? How's it really going for you right now? 
Can you bear the load that you're carrying at the moment? Can you sustain the way that you are living for another 10, 20, 30, maybe for some of us 40 years? Or are you thinking, I don't know how much longer I can really do this? I don't know if you were to perhaps imagine the state of your soul kind of like the power bar on your phone. And 100% is what Jesus describes as life to the full. You just brimming over with love and joy and peace and generosity and full attention to the moment, to God, to your family, to your friends, to the people around you. Life might be hard. It might be a battle. It might be tough. But it's still good. There's an ease about you. That's life to the full. Zero percent is just complete burnout. It's off work with stress. It's regular suicidal thoughts. Now be honest. Where would you put yourself on that scale right now? Now here's the thing. My observation would be most of us don't rest until we get way down to 20% or less. We don't rest until we have to. And then most of us don't rest very well. We confuse rest with mere entertainment or distraction. And most of us don't rest very long. And so most of the time we just kind of bump ourselves up to 40 or 50%. We're just about solvent. We can just about face showing up for work tomorrow morning. We hover around the just about manageable level. But all the time what we miss out on is life to the full, a joyful, happy life, a sense of peace, a sense of generosity and gratitude and contentment. We miss out on all the best stuff that Jesus has for us. My point is that without rest, we simply cannot be the people that Jesus has in mind. We cannot live the life that Jesus has on offer. And so we need to examine the yoke that we're carrying. We need to try and find a way to overcome the cancerous restlessness of our culture and find a way to tap into the true rest that Jesus offers. And so for the remainder of this talk, uh, I simply want to look at just one specific practice that might well help us to do this. If you were to read on in Matthew... You'd see that the very next section after this one where Jesus promises rest for your souls and speaks of his yoke being easy to bear and his burden being light, the very next section is not one but two stories about the Sabbath. I don't know what you think, but I don't think that's a coincidence. I suggest Matthew, the author, wants us to connect the dots between Jesus' open invitation, find rest for your soul, and the Sabbath, because in his mind, the two go together. Now, the word Sabbath, it literally means to stop. That's what it means. The Sabbath is simply a day to stop. Stop working. 
more than that, stop wanting. More than that, stop worrying. Just stop. And rest. You know, sometimes a a picture is worth a thousand words. Just think of the the pictures that come to us through lifestyle advertising. Almost all of the images, unless they're for a car or for alcohol, uh, most of the images are actually of stopping. I I flicked through a a magazine in in the week, uh, and the the pictures that bombarded me were uh, of people lying by a beach. Now, other people lounging on a comfortable, rather expensive sofa uh, watching a 100-inch TV screen, or people in bed surrounded by Egyptian cotton sheets and duvet covers uh, drinking freshly ground single-source coffee. It's like the advertisers know that you ache for this and you don't have it. They know you're tired, you're busy, you're stressed out, and you don't have this. And here's the irony. They then offer to sell it to you, forcing you to work harder to earn more money to afford what promises potential rest. But the crazy part of it is, actually, you don't need to buy anything. You don't need to reinvent your life. You don't need to work harder. You don't need to be rich. You just need to receive the Sabbath for what it is. A gracious gift from God. But I think it's probably fair to say a lot of us aren't particularly good at doing this. To once again quote A.J. Swoboda, Sabbath has been largely forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result? Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It's not as though we don't love God. We love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. It makes sense that commandment number four of the ten is remember the Sabbath. Why? Because we're prone to amnesia. We forget, and often we forget the things that matter the most. I'd argue that celebrating the Sabbath is something we desperately need to remember, especially against the backdrop of the restlessness in our culture right now. So let's try and get practical. How do we actually learn to do this? Because I think, if we're being honest, we'd have to admit, we're not going to default into doing this, are we? It's going to require, for many of us, a degree of intentionality. So how do we do this? Well, uh, in the time that remains, let me uh, unpack very quickly four key elements to effectively celebrating the Sabbath. Now, I've got an apology to make. They don't all begin with the same letter. And if you put them together, they don't spell anything significant. Uh, But the four key elements are these. Ceasing, renewing, 
embracing and feasting. Maybe, Andy, for the rest of the talk, you could be just thinking creatively how I could have done that better. Uh, but because I lack creativity, it's simply ceasing, renewing, embracing, feasting, which spells cref. So there you go. First of all, ceasing, highly memorable, ceasing. Uh, over in France, uh, in 1793, in an attempt to improve human productivity, uh, the French decided to modify the calendar. And they moved from a seven-day week to a 10-day week. But as you can probably tell by the fact we don't celebrate that now, the experiment radically failed. Uh, in fact, suicide levels rocketed. People burnt out left, right, and center. And get this, production actually decreased. Why? It turns out that humans weren't designed to work nine days before resting. We were made to work for six days and rest on the seventh. Now, here's the thing. I might be wrong, but probably your boss isn't going to forcibly stop you from working. And so, power to the workers. You need to take control and actively cease working one day a week. Marva Dawn, in her book on Sabbath, says this, On the Sabbath, we deliberately remember that we have ceased trying to be God and instead have put our lives back in his control. Concentrating on God's lordship in our lives enables us to return to his sovereign hands all the things that are beyond our control and terrifying us. Once those things are safely there, and as long as we don't stupidly take them back again, our emotions can find truly comforting and healing rest. Now, I think if we're going to successfully pull this off, probably we need to put some boundaries in place. Like, if I'm willing to acknowledge that God is sovereign and he is ultimately in charge, then personally, one day a week, I don't need to take that call. In fact, I'm not even going to check my emails. In fact, I'm not even going to think about work. Just by way of an aside, there's a significant body of scientific research that suggests even thinking about work releases many of the same chemicals that produce stress when we actually work. So I'm going to discipline myself not to even think about it. We have to learn, train ourselves, discipline ourselves to cease. And the goal of ceasing is so we renew ourselves. Sabbath is so much more than merely taking a day off so you can complete all the chores you didn't have time for in the rest of the week. Eugene Peterson calls that bastard Sabbath. It's the illegitimate child of God's true intention for Sabbath. And so the Sabbath isn't simply a day just to get all your other jobs done, or even just to relax. It's all about renewing yourself on every level, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Watching an entire season of our favorite show on Netflix, or getting promotion on career mode with FIFA, 
while eating Domino's pizza might be amazingly relaxing, but it's probably not going to restore your soul. You're not coming out of there like, my destiny is being released. I'm so much closer to God. You're not being slowly renewed into a better version of yourself. In the words of a friend of mine, you are simply medicating your mediocrity. Ouch. Jesus has a better vision for our lives. He wants us to live from a position of renewal, not just relaxation. And if we get this right, what we'll find is it will begin to affect the rest of our life. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, people who learn to take Sabbaths actually live all seven days differently. But for that to happen, there are some truths that we need to embrace. For starters, Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do, rather we are who we are loved by. That's what Sabbath does for us. As we intentionally focus on Jesus, we get our ambition, our fear, our confusion converted into security. Sabbath is a time where we get our broken identity changed by embracing Jesus' finished work for us. You know, I think one of the reasons why many of us can never truly rest is we are constantly fighting to try and prove ourselves and feel good about ourselves and establish our identity. And you don't need me to stand here and tell you that gets tiring. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it speaks in a profoundly different way to us. It says, you are already held in the highest regard by the highest being. You know what that means? I don't need your approval in order to feel good about myself anymore. I don't need anything besides Christ to get an identity. Because if he is on my side, who cares about the opinions of others? And so I can rest. Because Christ is my identity. And until you get that, no amount of holidays or leisure pursuits are ever going to work for you because your body might be resting, but your soul is still in turmoil. And that's what's causing, that's what's driving most of your restlessness and exhaustion. Listen, when your soul isn't at rest, holidays and days off aren't rest. They are merely distractions. They are merely an escape. They're like a drug. They mask it. They cover it up for a little while. But eventually, when you know you need to get back to work, you can feel that inner turmoil and anxiety building up all over again because your soul deep down isn't at rest. The good news of the gospel is that Christ and Christ alone can provide you 
with that inner rest you so desperately crave. He's given you a new identity in him as a dearly loved son or daughter of God. Tom prayed about it earlier. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. We come as children of our heavenly father. That's our identity. And so without Christ, it's like you'll work even while you're resting. But with Christ, it's staggering. You, you can rest even while you're working. And so Sabbath involves ceasing our work so you can be renewed at the deepest level as we embrace the truth of the gospel and resolve on a weekly basis to live in the good of it. Which leads to the fourth thing about celebrating Sabbath, feasting. After a bit of feasting, yeah, here we go. In the Jewish community, there are certain foods that they save and only eat on the Sabbath. There are certain songs they sing on the Sabbath. There's even, get this, a rabbinic teaching that if you are married, you should have sex on the Sabbath. But they basically try, I've got some of your attention now, so you're warming up to the idea of Sabbath. They basically try and turn this 24-hour period into a time of sheer delight. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's this psychological principle called pleasure stacking, where you save everything up and then pile it all up into one overwhelming experience of joy, food, drink, relationships, friendship, music. This is what you do. This is what you enjoy on the Sabbath. Now, I suggest when we begin enjoying the Sabbath like this in a life-giving way, when we cease and renew and embrace God and feast on all his good gifts to us, when we take in beauty and hope and peace and the life of God, then we are effectively, over time, developing antibodies that will help us fight the false promises of our culture that look so incredibly alluring, but only ever deliver death. As John Ortberg puts it, we must arrange life so sin no longer looks good to us. And I think Sabbath is a big part of that. Sabbath needs to be right at the center of our week, something that we plan for, a day of delight, a day that replenishes us, not something we kind of tack on at the end if we remember or it's convenient. No, it is a complete reorientation of the way that we live. Remember the passage in Exodus 33, we looked at it together a bit earlier in the year, where God promises Moses that his presence will go with him. Exodus 33, verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. What's he say next? I will give you rest. You get that? When the presence of God comes, rest comes. Isn't that what our city needs right now? All those who are exhausted, restless, burnt out, barely able to keep going, the offer of the rest-giving presence of 
God is surely incredible good news. And so we need to be the people who model this, who, who show that there is a way to truly rest. I mean, if we apply this to our lives and are transformed at a deep level from exhaustion to rest, people are going to pay attention, aren't they? People are going to notice. And when they ask us what our secret is, which inevitably they will, we then get the opportunity to introduce them to the person of Jesus, who's the source of our rest and the way of Jesus, which is this wonderful rhythm of rest. All of which sounds great in theory. I'm guessing some of you probably still aren't convinced. And even as I've been speaking, perhaps you've been thinking of a whole stack of arguments, reasons why this wouldn't work for you. And so, before we're done, uh, I'm just spend two minutes, kind of rapid fire, dealing with every, well, a few of the objections people might have to celebrating Sabbath. Here's the first one. What about legalism? What about legalism? Oh yeah, admittedly, you, you can be legalistic about anything. I mean, the, the Pharisees read the Gospels. They pretty conclusively prove that there is a way to practice religion that is destructive. My response so don't do that then. But the Sabbath is a gift. Enjoy it as a gift. But what about the new covenant? Surely we're under grace, not law. Our response? Okay. Well, just ignore it then. To your own peril. You, you don't have to enjoy God's gracious provision of the Sabbath if you don't want to, I'm not forcing you to do this. It is a gift. It's an invitation for you to enter into and enjoy. What if I work shifts and my work schedule is really sporadic? That's fine. Just do what you can. Start where you're at. I mean, anything's better than nothing. And don't get hung up about the day that you celebrate Sabbath. So, uh, just try and set out and ensure that you manage to get a 24-hour period of Sabbath every week, if you can. What if I'm really snowed under at work and I've just got some big deadlines coming up? I understand it's going to be hard for some of you. But think about it like this. Jesus Christ was the saviour of the world. And I would humbly suggest that if he managed to carve out the time to practice Sabbath while saving the world, I'm guessing probably there's a way for us to manage it in our busy schedule as well. I don't mean that flippantly. Really, it's a matter of faith. It's a faith decision. Am I willing to trust God when he says, take a day off, when, when it's busy and I can't, I can't afford to, are you willing in faith to say, God, okay, I'll take you your word. I'm going to submit to what you say. I'm going to obey you and trust you that if I stop working, you are able to work. Uh, and if there's a deadline looming or if it seems impossible or impractical, in faith, if I make this decision, 
like in France, when they worked extra hours, were less productive. If I work fewer hours, you'll enable me to be more productive. It's a faith decision at the end of the day. What about this one? What about children? I mean, uh, life's crazy. I mean, I love what you say, Jonathan, but I mean, uh, let's get realistic. Uh, We'd love to rest, but it just feels impossible right now. I admit, this can be tough. Uh, And I know it might seem completely unrealistic, but the time for Sabbath is always now and never later. Because, let's face it, there will always be a reason why it's going to be hard or impractical. It's a lie to think that there is coming a time when everything suddenly will get easier. I don't think that time will ever come. Yeah, there are seasons to life. Yes, you need to be incredibly gentle with yourself at certain stages. Yes, it is particularly challenging when your children aren't sleeping through the night. That doesn't mean you don't need this or can't do it. In fact, it probably makes it even more essential. So please, don't procrastinate or delay or put it off to an easier day that will probably never come. The time is now. Wherever you're at, whatever it looks like for you, whatever your personality type, whatever your stage of life, I want you to hear that Sabbath is a gift from God to you intended to bring you rest. At the end of the day, I'm not here to give you laws. I'm here to give you a vision. I simply want to invite you to seriously think through what it looks like for you in your context and then in faith and with joy live in the good of it and enjoy it.